0: Years ago, I was the pastor of a new and a very small church that met right next door to the largest and fastest growing church in our region. It's funny, every every Sunday I'd go down by the road to set up our church sign and watch droves of cars pass me on their way to the church next door to mine. I decided it'd probably be a good idea if I get out into the community and meet some people, and my last stop was the home of an elderly couple who welcomed me in with enthusiasm. They were so excited about me. They went on and on about how much they loved my sermons and how much they loved our radio program and what a great work for God we were doing in the community. Unfortunately, they had mistaken me for the pastor of the megachurch next door to mine repeatedly calling me by his name. I finally had to break it to them that I was not that pastor, and you should have seen the look on their faces. I watched their excitement morph into disappointment and the lady of the house said to me oh I see you're the pastor of that other one and so I was I left that home that day feeling disappointed I felt ignored I felt like that other pastor who frankly doesn't matter all that much have you ever been there many resumes sent but few return calls passed up for the promotion, or maybe you're in a marriage where you're basically treated like you just don't exist. Many of us know exactly what it's like to be picked last, written off, or politely dismissed. And it may shock you to discover that God himself, the God of the universe, knows exactly how this feels. Did you know that among self-identified Christians in America... That only 25% say they believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, that number drops. We are losing this generation because we have settled for a version of Christianity that has failed to engage the Holy Spirit as a present, transforming reality. We've sidelined His power in favor of our spiritless ingenuity, and we treated Him as if He's just that other member of the Trinity who just doesn't matter all. My name is Jeff Kennedy, and I wrote a book called Father, Son, and the Other One. And I wrote that book for every believer who has ever wondered if the Christian life is more than mere creeds and doctrines and denominational distinctives. I wrote it for all of those who struggle to tap into God's Spirit as a present, transforming reality. Father, Son, and the Other One will reintroduce you to the God who wants to invade your life with transforming presence. All righty. That is the book trailer that the, our publisher is using um, for this uh, book that will be coming out. It's, right now, it's going through about four stages of editing, and it'll be out uh, February. Many of you have asked me the question. It'll be out uh, February 2014 is when it will hit stores. And uh, we are continuing our series based on uh, that book idea called Father, Son... And the other one. And um, basically, the idea behind the book and the idea behind this series is that in America, the Holy Spirit is basically treated like he's just that other member of the Trinity who doesn't matter all that much. And this week, uh, last week, we sort of cracked the door open for what he does in our lives. And this week, we're going to drill down. We're going to zoom in and specifically address what the Holy Spirit does. In fact, we're going to address today what the Holy Spirit does first in our lives before he does anything else, before the Holy Spirit makes one more change, blesses you or does anything else in your life, he does this. Number one, if you're taking notes, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That's the first thing he does. The Holy Spirit convicts us, he brings conviction into our lives of sin. I don't know why my wife and I did this when uh, uh, we first were homeowners. We had been renters for like seven years in our marriage, and we finally bought a house out in Post Falls, Idaho. And uh, I don't know why we did this, but the first year of our marriage, the first year of owning that house, we never swapped out the batteries on our smoke alarms. Super smart, huh? I remember sitting on the couch, and the first thing, uh, the first time, uh, one of the alarms started chirping. Have you, you, you guys have alarms like that? I'm sitting there watching TV, watching basketball or something. All of a sudden, I hear, chirp. And I was like, what in the what? What is that? So I start walking around the house going, what is chirping? I thought it was one of the kids' toys. Finally, I, I, I walked right underneath the smoke alarm, the smoke detector that was chirping. And I thought, oh, it's my smoke detector. So I went back and sat on the couch for 10 more minutes, and it kept doing it. So I went and I popped the smoke, de- smoke detector off of the ceiling, took it down into the basement in the laundry room, and buried it under a pile of laundry. Bam! Done. Getting it done. That's what they call me. <laughs> Mr. Getting It Done. So I go back upstairs, and that worked for about 30 minutes until I realized that I could still hear that doggone thing from every room in the house. I was starting to lose it. So I went down and I got the uh, smoke detector. And I took it out to the garage. And this time I found an old box, put it in the box, and I grabbed a stack. And I mean a stack of old guitar magazines, stuck it on the box and shoved them down in there. And I looked over at my workbench trying to find my duct tape. (laughs) But before I spent the next 15 minutes wrapping this thing in duct tape in a cardboard sarcophagus, (laughs) um, I came to my senses. And I asked the question, what... Am I doing? Dummy, change the battery. So I found a 9 volt battery and popped it in there, popped it up on the ceiling, no more annoying chirps. Chirps gone. And I think that analogy is kind of how an analogy of what the Spirit does in our lives. The Spirit brings conviction of sin into our lives. And we can spend our lives anno- uh, ignoring His annoying chirps, but we can't ignore them forever. And I think both religious people and people who are far from God and irreligious struggle with the same sin. They share the same motivation for hiding the conviction. They're both trying to cover up the alarms of guilt and shame. One with religious activity, piles of it, lots of it, and the other with hedonism. You know what that is? Most Americans have bought the lie that our highest priority in life is self-gratification. Our immediate satisfaction, that's hedonism. It's hedonism disguised in the respectable apparel of self-realization. Just actualize yourself. But at the moment we bow to this idol of self-actualization, we become subjects to a most awful tyrant. Ironically, we proclaim ourselves free from behind the very prison bars that we have made our, for ourselves. We proclaim ourselves enlightened when really we are the dumbest of fools. And we proclaim ourselves, we declare ourselves under no one's authority, and God's authority is the most freeing agent of all. We are thin, gaunt, emaciated shadows of our garden selves. We have the faint likeness of heaven, but we do not have its presence. We lost the presence of God in the garden. We didn't lose an awesome garden with some awesome fruit trees. We lost the presence of God. And ever since then, mankind has been banished from his presence, and Jesus came not to give you a new religion, not to hit you with a commandment tablet or a new rule book. Jesus came to restore you back to God's presence because that's what'll change your life. Jesus said this in his well-known farewell speech as recorded in John's gospel. Here's what he told the disciples. He says, I'm going away. And they were like, oh, what? You just got here. It just started getting awesome. And now he was leaving. He said, but I got to do that because I'm going to send you another agent, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And here's what Jesus says. Your spirit will do. First thing he'll do, John sixteen eight. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're there, underline those three words because you got to know. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What are we talking about here? I'm going to unpack that. The role of the Spirit is to cut through, dig out all that stuff, find those alarms, and address the alarms of guilt and the sirens of shame. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring you and me inexorably, inescapably to this conclusion. Without Jesus Christ, you and I are headed for a crisis eternity. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. You don't have Jesus, you're lost. And that's the message of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was sent, Jesus said, to convict us of sin, to sound the alarm. Something is not right. You are out of alignment with God and you need Jesus to get back into alignment. Secondly, the Spirit confronts our self righteousness. Notice that Jesus didn't just say he's come to tell you that you're a sinner, far from God. Well, he sure has. But he's also come to convict you of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Why do you need conviction about righteousness? Because if you don't know what is righteous, you don't know what is unrighteous. And Jesus is the standard, and he's the only standard bearer in the kingdom of God. And when you know that he is God's perfect standard of righteousness, now you have something to compare your life to. Mark and Luke tell a wonderful story in Luke 18, 18 through 21. And what Luke tells the story, Mark has it too in Mark 10, about a young man who was rich Rich kid. Inherited his wealth from his family, for sure. But he was racked with conviction. The young man's theology was okay. In fact, it was just fine. And when he came to Jesus, the story goes like this. He walked up to Jesus and said, good master, or good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the first century, that meant To to participate in the final resurrection at the end of the age. And to be guaranteed eternal life in God's new kingdom that was coming to earth. Jews didn't believe they were going to die and go off to heaven. Though they did have a doctrine of heaven, they believed that God was going to realize his kingdom right there. Led by the Messiah, and he wants to be in. And he wants a new resurrected body. And so he asked Jesus, what must I do, good teacher, to inherit resurrection An eternal life with God in his new kingdom. Well, this was an odd question because every good Jew believed they were already saved. If you were a Jew born in the line of Abraham, your salvation was already guaranteed. You were the only people on the earth who were saved. Especially a Torah observant Jew. This guy had been keeping the commandments. He had been working on it. And Jesus confronts him for this the rich man approached Jesus, he had every external reason to believe that he was accepted before God, even his wealth. Did you know in the first century that the Jews believed in a false doctrine that the richer you are, the more favorable to God you were? In fact, they believed that there was a direct correlation between your material wealth and your inner piety, your inner righteousness. The wealthier you are, well, that's just evidence that God has accepted you even more. You're even more favored in his kingdom. And it was a very hierarchical system. And, and so Jesus blows this up. This is a false teaching. So every, even though he has every external indicator that he's in, his heart is sick with sin. This is what prompted his question to Jesus. He has a sickness of heart. And he's made his rounds to all the other rabbis in town. And guess what? They've all prescribed the same cure. And Jesus does too. Here's what Jesus says. You should just keep on obeying the commands and you'll be all right. Jesus is simply rehearsing what has already been stipulated in the man's fine Jewish education. This is the cure he would have heard from every other teacher, every other master rabbi. This is the one. And Jesus is not telling him that he will be fine if he just follows Torah. It's a test of responsiveness. Jesus is saying, do you really want to know the truth? Because if you want to know it, I'll tell you. But if you just want status quo theology, if you just want to hear what you've heard at the Torah school, there you go. There it is. Do you really want to know the truth? But the man presses. He says, I have, Master. I have done all that. I have obeyed Moshe. I have obeyed Moses since the time I was in the Beth Sefer school, in the synagogue. And I have learned to recite Torah with pitch perfect ability. But something is still missing. And I think Jesus could hear a genuine undercurrent of heartache in his voice. And Mark 10, it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus loved him. The local shamans have sold him snake oil. Their cures are bogus. They have taken all his money, and now he stands in front of the man who has the cure, and he knows it. And I can imagine it must have been weird standing in front of Jesus. Can you imagine this? You're standing in front of this guy who who looks through you as if you are made of glass, and he looks into the windows of this man's soul, and he locates the cancer that is killing him. Chirp. He finds it says, okay, you want the cure? Here it is. You want it? Go sell everything you own. Every last bit of it. The houses, the summer house in Tel Aviv, Go sell your beach home. Go sell your winter home. Go sell your property that you've inherited from generation to generation to generation that your identity is tied to. Go sell that. Sell off your birthright. Sell everything that you have. Give all of the proceeds to the poor and the indigent and then you come be my Talmud, which is the word disciple. Jesus offered him membership in the guild and he rejects it. What he wanted from Jesus was a bandage. What he wanted from Jesus was an expedient answer, and Jesus does not give him that. Jesus gives him radical surgery without killing the patient. And he offers him something that only Jesus would offer him. You go and lose it all, and then you come be my disciple. The point of the story is not that Jesus has something against rich rich fat cats. If you read that into it, you've read it wrong. Jesus' demand simply surfaced and a self-imposed barrier to the man's discipleship he hit the ceiling of his growth and it was a self-imposed barrier no amount of fastidious meticulous compliance with Torah regulations would ever give him the freedom that Jesus could give him if he followed Jesus by faith it would instantly cure him it would instantly address his guilt did you know that when the day of Pentecost came in Acts chapter 2, that's the first day the Holy Spirit was poured out on the masses. Do you know what happened? The disciples are just filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And the people who are there to listen, um, they sort of gather around. And they're hearing the tongues in their own language. And the Holy Spirit is just pouring out like a river. And it's powerful. And Peter gets up to interpret the event. Peter's the interpreter of all this. And he gets up to say, this is what's going on. God has fulfilled his oath to Abraham to send the Messiah to save the world. You're all sinners. Get saved right now. Repent and believe in Jesus and be baptized. And so what is their response? It says they were cut to the heart. And they exclaimed, Peter... What shall we do to be saved? And Peter's response, repent, believe, and be baptized. Who were these people? Were they a bunch of rabble-rousers and scoundrels? No. They were Torah-observant Jews. Like this rich young man, they were there to celebrate a feast that Moses commanded them to do in Leviticus 23. It was the Feast of Pentecost. They were there doing their religious duty. And they are sinners far from God, and they need the Holy Spirit. And so the point is, it doesn't matter if you're religious, and it doesn't matter if you're irreligious. We all have the same malady. We are unrighteous before God. And we need the Holy Spirit to wash us clean. So it doesn't matter how long you've been to church. It doesn't matter how many Christian doctrines you can recite. It doesn't matter how much time you spent in Awana or Sunday school or Adventureland. It doesn't matter. What matters is do you have a personal relationship, saving relationship by the Holy Spirit with Jesus? So Luke drives his point home. He tells another parable in Luke 18. It's about a Pharisee. Jesus says there was a Pharisee, for instance, And they were both at the temple complex to offer their sacrifice before God. And the Pharisee comes up close. And he bellows on at close range. But behind him, way behind him, is a tax collector who won't even come up to the altar. And while the Pharisee bellows on at close range, thanking God that he is not like the riffraff. Thanking God that he is not like this sinner and that sinner and this obvious tax collector who's from Galilee over here the tax collector stands as far away as he can from the altar and he trembles in a fit of tears and rips his clothes and bears his all to God and says God forgive me a sinner and then Jesus asked this question which one of those two you think went home justified well it is a question that everyone has the answer to everyone knows the answer to that one It's the man who came with no religious pretense. The man who came and bared his all to God. The man who said, I am a sinner far from God. God, accept my discredited act of worship, please. So who's the righteous one? It's the one who confesses. It's the one who repents. It's the one who gives himself to Jesus. I learned the parable the hard way. I had uh, an opportunity to take a driving class A few years ago, uh, and I was invited to be there by the kind officer who pulled me over for running an ambiguous red light. (laughs) He gave me two options. He said, you can go to the class or you can get the ticket. And I didn't want to ruin my Sterling driving record, so I chose the class. But I also didn't want to sit in a driving class on Monday night for four hours. Believe you me, I did not want to do that. But I I stood there, I went to the class, I showed up a little bit late, and I got to the class, I was the last one there. There was 20 people in this course. It was at the Post Falls, Idaho Police Department. I've taken it several times, I know exactly where it is. If you ever need directions, I can (laughs) just punch it in on your GPS. This was my first time. So I got there and uh, got there a little bit late, and I sat in the back of the class. And I mean to tell you, you wouldn't have known that I was a pastor. I wasn't wearing a collar. I didn't have my Bible. I wasn't quoting Bible verses. I sat in the back with my arms folded, just radiating my disgust with that class. I didn't want to be there. And I looked and I noticed all the people sitting around me were kind of a rough bunch. Some of them had tattoos, like Pastor Kurt. (laughs) They were rough people. Some of them smelled like cigarette smoke, like Pastor Matt. No, just kidding. I'm just joking. Sorry. So I sat there thinking to myself, I'm not like all these people. I don't deserve this. I'm better than them. You know, I sat there with this rotten, awful, godless attitude. I was a Pharisee. I was, a, I was giving birth to the Pharisee within. And then the instructor asked two questions. These are the two questions he led the class with. We're going to go around the room, and every one of you are going to tell me. Uh, what you're in for what are you doing time for and do you deserve to be here I thought that was an interesting question and I sat there and went I can't wait till he gets to me I'm going to give him what for? <laughs> and then something miraculous happened starting with the first person in the front of that room every person in that class admitted that what they had done was wrong that they broke the law and they deserved to, to be there. And so this was like a battering ram to my cold, dead heart. And by the time they got to me, I was so moved by their confession that I got kind of choked up and I said, yes, um, yeah, I uh, drove through a red light that was not ambiguous. It was red. And I deserve to be here. I deserve to do this class. And right then and there, I joined the fellowship of the post-falls traffic violators. (laughs) Remember the good Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. He is there to offer his gift. And he knows he's better than everyone in the room. But who goes away justified? It's the one who bears his all and confesses his sin and says, God, I am not even worthy to be in this room much less worthy to have your forgiveness. And that's the way we church people get, isn't it? No, we, we just, we know the Bible teaching at our church is superior to that church down the street. But we know that our worship is better, isn't it? It's better. But we know we have so much more to offer God than that, those other Christian losers. And inwardly, we are seething with spiritual snobbery, aren't we? And it is a repulsive thing to the Lord God when in reality what he wants us to do is to bear our all and confess our sin and join the fellowship of the broken. Now, you may be tempted to think that self-righteousness is just the sin for buttoned-up Bible thumpers. But you'd be wrong. And if you doubt that, tomorrow at work, Find someone at your job and ask them this question. Do you deserve, don't don't ask them if they think they're going to heaven. Just ask this, do you deserve to go to heaven? Do you think you deserve to go to heaven? What do you think their response will be? 90% of them will say, well, yeah, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like all those traffic violators in Post Falls. (laughs) You know, I'm not a sex trafficker. I am I don't beat my wife. I'm, I meet a minimum threshold of goodness. That is self-righteousness. Both the religious and the irreligious struggle with it. It is the universal sin of humanity. But God calls us to repent of that. The Spirit of God reveals a barrier that is between us and the master. There is something between you and your master. And the answer is your sin. And he would lead you to the quiet paths, and he would lead you to verdant pastures, and he would lead you to the quiet waters and restore your soul, but you can't get there unless you admit where you are. It's forgiveness and repentance. So what does it mean to repent? Good question. Here it is. I'll put it up on the screen. What is repentance? Repentance is the natural response of the soul that has been profoundly moved by the effort of God. You can write that down leave it up there for a second. Repentance is the natural response. It's just natural to want to respond to a God to be profoundly moved by his grace and his forgiveness and want to respond to what he's done, his effort for your salvation, his effort for your cleansing and your spiritual growth. Repentance is the natural response of the soul that has been profoundly moved by God's own effort to save us. To repent is to abandon any hope that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is to abandon any notion that your prudish prudish virtue is going to cut it because it's not. That's repentance. It is a confrontation with self-righteousness. The Spirit wants to drag my sin scratching and yowling into the light of the cross. Because only there can Jesus deal with it. And only there can he begin the work of transformation that we talked about last week. So let me give you three really quick barriers to the Spirit's conviction in your life. Barriers to conviction, write these down. The first one is this, blame shifting. You wanna hinder and stop the work of the Spirit in your life to convict you and bring you inescapably to the truth of your sin? Shift the blame to everyone else. I submit that that is the most natural human response of the human heart. If you don't believe that, read Genesis. Because what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? God came rolling through the garden, and he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I'm behind the bush over here. And God said, come out. He said, "I, I didn't want to come out because I was naked. I was exposed And God said, who told you you were exposed? And he said, well, um, see that woman that you gave me? (laughs) That's what he said. That woman that you gave me gave me some fruit, and it messed me up. So like a good judge, a good father, he turns to the woman and says, what's going on? And she said, well, you see that snake you put in the garden? He, uh, He messed me up. And so what is everyone doing in the garden? They are blame shifting their sin. They're transferring the blame to to their circumstance. They're transferring the blame to someone else. As long as you are transferring the blame of your sin, God can never begin the work of transformation in you. It isn't until you stop doing that, get on your knees and say, God, I am a sinner far from you and I've blown it. And I want to join your fellowship, but I am not going to blame it on this. I'm not going to blame it on my dad. The fact that my dad abused me, or the fact that my mom abused me, or the fact that my wife cheated on me, or any of that. I'm not going to blame it on the people around me. I'm going to take ownership for my sin. Stop blame shifting. Secondly, is justifying. The second barrier to the Spirit's work of conviction in your life is justifying your sin. What does this mean? This means softening the blow, to euphemize. Okay, some nice words there. To euphemize your sin, to soften the blow of it. To call it something other than what it really is. It's sin. If you have sinned against your brothers and your sisters, go to your brothers and sisters and tell them, I have sinned against you greatly, my brother and my sister. I tell you, this is the culture that we create in our staff, and we are serious as a heart attack about it. If you don't believe that, you haven't been around here the last... 3 weeks. We are serious as a heart attack about this because this justifying hinders the work of the spirit in your life and it hinders the work of the spirit in the church. When we say when we fail to agree with God about what we have done and we soften it and we try to make it out to be something else, we hinder the work of the spirit in the church. God's church is the one who suffers from that. Stop justifying your sin. Call it what it is. The third barrier to your sin will be listening to false voices. In the Old Testament, they were called false prophets. Let me tell you what was going on. Israel had abandoned their God. They were fulfilling uh, Moses' prophecy at the end of the book of Deuteronomy when Moses said, you are going to disobey. You are going to abandon everything I just gave you. You're going to abandon all that. And once you do, you'll go into exile and there you'll be. And God will have to rescue you again because you are his prized possession, but you're going to be disobedient. They were doing it. They were fulfilling it. God had predicted it would come true. And so there they were, worshiping other gods. There they were in adultery to their God, and the true prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Hosea said to them, you are going into exile and the cadre of false prophets that surrounded them. The masses of false prophets said, Don't worry about it, guys. You'll be fine. You'll be all right. Nebuchadnezzar is not coming. We know from history they were wrong. They had surrounded themselves with lying prophets. Stop surrounding yourself with people who don't know what they're talking about. Don't fill your ears with unwise counsel, people who are lost. People who haven't been around as long. Find some wise counselors. Find some true prophets. And here's how you know the difference between a good counselor and a bad counselor. The track record. Look at their track record. If the person has a pretty good batting average of calling it right, then, then that's, pretty, that's a good indication that they're going to be a wise counselor for your life. Get rid of false voices. Because as long as you are listening to dummies, you are not going to grow in your in your spiritual walk with Jesus, okay? Stop. So stop listening to the dummies. Get some new prophets. Find the true ones. Find the good ones. Because they will speak the truth of God into your ears with love, but they will speak the truth. You see, the Spirit doesn't just come to convict you of sin. He doesn't just come to convict you of righteousness. He comes to convict you of judgment. Because judgment is coming. And when you listen to the false prophets, when you listen to the false voices, the unwise counsel, they will lead you to judgment because God is eventually going to fix you one way or the other. He is eventually going to address it, and you can do it on his terms, or he'll meet you on yours if you will confess your sin. So the barrier to life in the spirit of conviction is a self-right attitude, thinking that I'm well when really I'm quite ill. And the barriers are tuning into false voices instead of tuning into wise counsel. And blame shifting our sin to everyone else and softening it and justifying it. These are the things that hinder the work of the Spirit in our lives. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and we're going to worship one last time. In two ways. One, we're going to take the offering this morning. I want to encourage you, if, if this is your church family... To support this church because giving is an act of worship. And as we do that, as the worship team comes up and as we sort of play through one last song and, and give, I want you to do more than just open your wallets. I want you to open your heart right now. I want you to open your mind and open your heart to the Spirit's work in you. Are there areas in your heart and in your mind that the Spirit could move on and He could change and flip the switch? And say, this is a barrier between you and the master, between you and I. And so open your heart to that this morning. Why don't you go ahead and close your eyes and we'll pray? There are three groups of people I want to respond from this morning. The first two are in the same boat because you're sinners. Some of you are religious sinners, been to Bible school, know the Torah. You know the law, but you never repented of your sin. And I want you to know you are just as lost in church as the people in your neighborhood without Jesus who have never been to church. You are just as lost. And if you're here today, and you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come mightily into your heart and cleanse you from sin, I want you to be open to him today invite him in the other group is the irreligious those of you who are sinners look if you're messed up in some stuff addictions self-made hell of uh, mistakes and addictions you're a sinner and i'm not going to stand here and tell you you're not you are you're far from god and you're lost and you need to open your heart this morning and ask jesus to begin to forgive you and ask the holy spirit to reveal your sin to you Last group are those of you who are believers. You have been born again by the Holy Spirit, but you've been living in a secret area of sin. You have taken an alarm, something that's been trying to get your attention, and you've hid it in the basement. You pile some stuff on it. You're trying to keep it out of sight, but the Holy Spirit ain't gonna let that happen. He wants to bring it up into the light. He wants to fix it so he can stop the alarms of guilt. If that's you right now, ask yourself this. What is it? What is between you and the master Jesus? What area of sin do you need to confess and come into the light about? That's what we're gonna do. As we sing, as we worship, I wanna invite you to ask, you to ask the Holy Spirit to invade your space right now. Let him do the work of conviction. Let's, let's worship. Listen, now. Uh, the truth of that song is what'll set you free from sin. Because of Jesus alone, that's how we're alive. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. That's your anthem today. If you've sang that anthem for the first time and meant it from your heart, uh, we have a new believers packet back on the back table. I want you to go back there, pick one up. It's got a Bible and some other things that will help you get started in your walk with Jesus. We'll also have some prayer counselors. They're not priests. Actually, they are, but they will be down front today to hear your confession, to pray for your needs. Listen, the Holy Spirit can't do one more thing in your life until he brings you to conviction. And if he has, God bless you, the Lord is beginning a work of transformation in your heart, but until he brings you and I, inescapably, to conviction of sin, he can't do another thing. He can't meet your needs, he can't give you a job, he can't bless you, because that's the first job of the Holy Spirit, okay? God bless you guys. Have a great week.